want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open to 1 Peter chapter 2 uh, this morning. We're going to be taking a look at a few verses in, in 1 Peter in a, in a couple moments. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 is where we will pick things up. I want to begin this morning by sharing uh, just a story from uh, very early on. In fact, the, the, the early days, the earliest days after Christine and I moved here to Edmonton, uh, nearly 19 years ago, we moved here with, uh, at the time, our only son, uh, Calvin. He was uh, about two foot three then. He's, he's, he's six foot three now, so this is a long time ago. Um, when we first moved, we moved into the house that we still live in uh, today. We've been in the same place. And uh, I don't know how, how you function or what you do when you move or go to a new location. I typically don't get out a map and study it a whole lot. I'm, I'm more uh, the kind of guy who learns by trial and error and finding my way around. So we, we moved into our home. Uh, the particulars aren't important if you can't picture it or if you don't know where we live, but we live not too far from Sunrise, just uh, north up 34th Street on Kirkwood Way. Uh, well, we moved into our house and uh, we, we drove into our house the first few times uh, from the north. So as the white mud is just north of our house, so we came in off of 34th Street, Kirkwood Avenue, down Kirkwood Way to our home. That was the way that I knew how to get to our house. And so uh, everything in those days, we'd, we'd drive north from our house towards Kirkwood Avenue and out on either the white mud or south down 34th Street. I don't remember exactly how I discovered it, but it wasn't that long after we were here that I discovered uh, that you could drive south, that I didn't have to go north. I could drive south to 43rd Avenue and out to 34th Street. And it was this whole new way that opened up after for a number of days or maybe a week of always driving the same way. Uh, it's been amusing for me as a father to see this uh, my boys, as they've gotten their driver's license, a couple of them, and begin to drive, uh, they, they've shared, oh, you know, I know how to get from our house to A, and I know how to get from our house to B, but I can't get from A to B without coming to our house until all of a sudden the light goes on and you, you discover a new way. Well, this morning, uh, we're celebrating Easter. We're celebrating uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus through which he opened up a new way. Now, uh, the one big difference from my story is that, that, that Jesus didn't just open our eyes to a new way, but through Jesus' death and his resurrection, he actually opened a new way for us to live. He opened new life for us. And so that's what we are going to be looking at this morning. Now, a number of weeks ago when COVID-19 first began impacting our lives here locally in substantial ways, uh, I shared a message from 1 Peter. We looked at 1 Peter 5, 7, uh, a verse that, uh, that says, Cast all your anxieties on him that is on Jesus, uh, because he cares for you. This morning we're returning to 1 Peter. We're going to look at a text that comes earlier in the book in chapter 2. But I do want to remind you again, even though we were here about a month ago, I want to remind you again of some of the contextual issues uh, that, that are relevant for us when we come to this letter. 1 Peter was a letter written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, and he wrote it to uh, churches uh, in present-day Turkey along the, the coast of the Black Sea. And he wrote it to them in a time of trouble, in a time of suffering. Uh, this is what Peter H. Davids writes. First Peter, this letter, is a highly relevant book wherever the church is suffering. So we are living in a time of suffering, not, not simply the church, of course, all of humanity. This is a global pandemic, and we are all suffering. But the, the book is written to believers who are experiencing suffering, so uh, very relevant for us today. 
Um, tradition says it came from Peter, probably with his companion Silas, a mission, uh, missionary partner working with him, two believers, as I said, in Turkey. Likely written around 64 AD, six years before the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, just before a great persecution broke out against those who followed Jesus. Peter's goal in this letter is to encourage the church and to encourage believers either in the midst of suffering that is just beginning or just before that suffering uh, hits them in earnest. And to that end, he has a lot to say to these believers about living in the midst of difficult times. He's addressing uh, how to live as a follower of Jesus, uh, what that life is supposed to look like in the context of the world. So uh, whereas some other letters address us as believers about how to live in relationship with one another in the church, like 1 Corinthians addresses a whole lot of issues about life in the church. 1 Peter is directed to believers uh, in, in life in the world, uh, in, in the non-believing world around them. And so uh, I want us to understand that as we turn to this. This morning, we're going to focus our attention on a number of verses that, that Peter writes, the end of chapter 2. Now, he is speaking first. We're jumping partly into uh, a specific part of the letter. Peter is addressing uh, specifically believers who are slaves in that day in the Roman Empire. And he's, what he's going to make clear is that they may, as slaves, as they live as followers of Jesus, uh, living faithfully for Jesus as a slave may involve them suffering unjustly, suffering even though they're innocent. So I want us to understand that. There's no promise here from Peter to these believers that, hey, if you follow Jesus, everything will go smoothly. Everything will be lovely. No, he's saying, as you follow Jesus faithfully, here, this is what it means for you as slaves, and it, it may require, it may involve unjust suffering on your part. That's where we're going to jump into the text, uh, beginning of verse 21, 1 Peter 2, 21 to the end of the chapter. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What I want to do with you in the next few minutes as we're together here this morning is ask three questions with you. First, what has Jesus done? According to what Peter's saying here, what has Jesus done? Question two, what are we to do? And question three, how are we to do it? So what has Jesus done? What are we to do? And how are we to do it? So question one, what has Jesus done? In order to answer that question, I want us to look back to verse 24, where we read this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Uh, this is reminding us of what we explored on Friday, what we focused on on Friday as we gathered for Good Friday. We celebrated, we remembered, we marked Jesus' death at Golgotha. Jesus was crucified. He was executed on Friday of this week that we're celebrating the, the events of Passion Week. Uh, Peter draws our eyes, he points our eyes to look to that event, Jesus' death for us. Jesus executed on a Roman cross. Jesus' death 
that was died under the charge of uh, being a wannabe king. He was charged essentially with insurrection. Uh, he died as the one claiming to be king of the Jews, though he was innocent. I reminded you on Friday, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that the Jewish leaders had brought him to him out of jealousy, out of envy. And yet Pilate, out of a uh, desire to preserve his own self, his own well-being, uh, agreed and handed Jesus over to be executed as a political insurrectionist. Now Jesus, who was killed, was no mere man. The Bible tells us, the Bible reveals to us, that in Jesus we see God in the flesh. Uh, fully God and fully man. Something we cannot fully grasp and wrap our minds around, but the Bible is clear. In 1 John 1, 3, speaking about Jesus uh, with the, the name The Word, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. A bit later in John's Gospel, talking to Jesus' disciples, specifically in conversation with one of His disciples, Philip, Jesus says this, Anyone who has seen Me has seen the Father. In Colossians 1.15 we read these words, The Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 asserts, The Son, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of His being. The, the Bible is clear that in Jesus we encounter God the Son, that, that fully God, fully man is who we encounter in Jesus, no mere man. And on Good Friday we, we remember Jesus' death as a political uh, insurrectionist dying the hands of Rome. Jesus lays down his life at Golgotha, uh, and what we talked about on Friday is that he died for us. He died in our place. He bore the penalty that is, belongs to you and to me, that all of us as human beings are guilty as, as of offending God, of, of rebelling against God. We are guilty of sin. And yet, Christ, Jesus, died for us. Uh, Romans 5, we read this, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Paul writes. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of Jesus. That is, the death of Jesus for us is the means by which God brings us back into right relationship with him. Our sin separates us from God. Christ's death for our sin, Jesus paying the price, Jesus bearing our sins reconciles us to the Father. It fix, fixes what is broken. See, Jesus died for us. He bore in his body on the cross our sins, yours and mine. And when we put our faith in Jesus, our sins are taken away. They're paid for Christ. Christ bore in his body our sin on the cross. So here's what we need to understand. As Jesus hung on the cross dying, as Jesus gave up his life, laid down his life for us, all our sin, as Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. All our sins were laid upon him. He bore them, all our sins. All our greed, all our selfishness, all our lust, all our gossip, all our envy, all our meanness, all our gluttony, all our idolatry, all our sin was laid on Him. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. Jesus' death 
was for us. Jesus' death was for sinners. He bore in his body on the cross our sin. This is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians uh, where he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. See, Peter points us to Jesus and, and Jesus' death and what happened at the cross. As uh, This is a significant thing. This is at the heart of the gospel, Jesus' death for us. And Jesus did not remain dead. But God gloriously raised him back to life. Paul writes this in Romans 4. So we think about Christ's death for us and God raising him back to life. Uh, Paul writes this, He was delivered over to death for our sins. There we have it again, for us, for our sins. And was raised to life for our justification. Justification speaks to us being declared right, holy, forgiven, purified through Christ. Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification. Jesus' resurrection is a sign, it is evidence that his sacrifice was accepted, that it has affected the, the forgiveness for all those who put their faith in him. Wayne Gruden writes this, When Christ was raised from the dead, it was God's declaration of approval of Christ's work of redemption. See, Christ died for our sins. How do we know that it was effective? Because God raised him back to life for our justification, Paul says. That's what Jesus has done. Jesus has died in our place. He has borne all our sins in his body on the cross and God has raised him back to life as evidence that his sacrifice was effective, that our penalty has been paid. That's question one, or the answer to question one, what has Jesus done? Question two, what are we to do? Well, our text here, specifically, there are two answers that can be found in it, um, in, in these verses. I want to contend that one of the answers is ultimately absorbed by or subsumed by the second answer. I'm going to begin with the former. Our passage begins saying this, to this you were called. Now that raises the question, to what? To what are we called? And we have to look back in the text to a verse that I didn't read, but I already told you. Uh, Peter is writing to slaves, believers in Christ, followers of Jesus, who find themselves uh, in, in a position of slavery in the Roman Empire. He's writing to them, and what he has asserted uh, immediately before this is that it is good or it is commendable before God if they suffer for doing good. He says, to what, it's no benefit to you if you suffer for doing bad. If you, if you, if you are a bad slave or you're disrespectful or, or to your master and you suffer for that, like, big deal. But it's commendable to God if you suffer for doing good. That's what comes immediately before this. And then he says these words, immediately following that, uh, to this you were called, he says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So before the words, to this you were called, he says it's commendable before God if you suffer for doing good. After the words, to this you were called, he says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving for you an example that you should follow in his steps. Follow in his steps. What, what we should imagine, what we should picture is as a young child walking behind her father in the snow, trying to get her feet into each of his, uh, the impressions that her father's feet have left, to follow in Christ's footsteps. He is an example we're to follow. Jesus has left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Jesus' pattern of life is to become our pattern of life. 
Well, what specifically is Peter getting at here? What is he referencing in the letter? Well, he, say, he, he says in verse 24 that Jesus bore in his body our sins on the cross. Now, obviously, we can't do that. We can't die a sin-atoning death. So that clearly is not what Paul is pointing us to. What is he pointing to us to, though, is Jesus' suffering and the manner of his suffering. Listen to verses 22 and 23. He committed, he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Of course, we cannot die a sin-atoning death. That is the unique uh, role in redemption that Jesus did. But we are called to follow his example, to follow in his steps. Well, what are his steps? What was his, his example? Jesus suffered for doing good. Jesus suffered innocently. Jesus suffered and did not retaliate. Jesus suffered and made no threats. Rather, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. We're called to follow that example. We're called to follow in his footsteps. That the pattern of Jesus' life and suffering would be a pattern for our lives. I've just started reading a new book uh, Richard Wormbrand's autobiographical book called Tortured for Christ. It, it tells a story, and again, I'm not very far into it, but it, it tells a story of, of Richard who was a pastor in Romania who ended up being arrested and serving 14 years in jail, being tortured for his faith. But he does so with joy, he does so willingly, proclaiming the hope of the gospel to prison guards. And, and the point of the story that I'm at, he's already, it's, it's telling the story before he was imprisoned and uh sorry he's telling the story after he's gotten out already and and he encounters a man on the street he's walking with a a friend and and turns out that that man that he, he greets and has warm conversation with was one of the prison guards involved in his incarceration and his torture but richard followed in the footsteps of jesus he suffered innocently and did not retaliate he suffered and did not utter threats. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He trusted his heavenly Father. Now what might it look like for you and for me today to obey these words, to follow the example of Jesus, to follow in his footsteps, that the pattern of his life would be the pattern of ours? What might that look like? It, it, it would seem unlikely that you or I will suffer like Richard Wombrandt, Though that might happen, certainly some among us, perhaps more than others, know what it means to suffer for our faith. Some of you logging in from far away, from places where your faith has cost you, where you have experienced physical suffering. Though for many of us, that might seem unlikely. But what might it look like to to Walk in the footsteps of Jesus in this way that Peter's talking about. I was reflecting on that question and thinking about what we're going through in our world with COVID-19 and, and all the restrictions and the fear and the anxiety that people are feeling and some of the, uh, the things we encounter perhaps when we go to the store to buy food or other essentials like toilet paper. And I don't say this to be funny, but what would happen? Can you imagine if you are walking through the grocery store and you have 
some things in your cart and, and someone in their fear and anger or whatever lashes out and they reach out and they grab that pack of toilet paper out of your cart. They grab something that you had picked off the shelf while it was still available and now they're all gone and so they, they snatch it out of your, your cart. How does Christ, how does following in the footsteps of Christ lead us to respond in that moment? What does it look like to suffer for doing good, for being good? What does it look like to suffer and not retaliate? What does it look like to suffer like Christ and not utter threats? What does it mean in in a moment like that to entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father who judges justly? We don't know what lies ahead in the coming weeks. We don't know what lies ahead in the future as we walk through this pandemic. But Peter says, Jesus says to us through 1 Peter, to this you were called. To this you were called. Follow the example of Christ who suffered innocently, who suffered without retaliating who said it is commendable before God to suffer for doing good. Brothers and sisters, might Jesus call us to suffer in the coming weeks? What will that look like? Are we prepared ourselves? Are we anticipating? Are we saying, Jesus, move in me. May I embrace the pattern that I see in you. May I be willing to suffer innocently. May I be willing to suffer without retaliating. May I be willing to suffer without uttering threats. May I entrust myself to your Heavenly Father, to my Heavenly Father. That's the first answer our text offers to the question, what are we to do? But there is a second, and I believe the second answer is is larger, and it subsumes, it absorbs that first one. What what does it mean to follow in the pattern of Christ? I said earlier that the second answer includes that. So the first is that we are to suffer for doing good. The second answer to what are we to do, uh, we find in verse 24, if we turn back to there where we began, we read, He Himself, that is Christ Jesus, uh, bore our sins in his body on the cross. And here the verse continues, so that, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that Jesus' death for us had a goal. Jesus' death on the cross was so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Jesus' death brought about forgiveness, brought about our justification, His death and His resurrection. We are declared right. If we put our faith in Jesus, the Bible tells us that our sins are paid for, that we are forgiven, that we are cleansed, that we are washed. And not only that, we are covered with Christ's righteousness. God looks at us and He sees not our record of performance, but but Christ's performance for us. We are forgiven, we are declared righteous, clothed with the perfection of Jesus. But there's more. Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel event that we celebrate this weekend, is so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Here is the new way. Here is the new life that Jesus came to purchase, to secure for us. See, God's redemptive activity in Christ is not only about forgiveness so that we get a get-out-of-jail-free card. 
It's not only about forgiveness now so that one day when we die, we go to heaven, though it includes that, but it is far more. Jesus died and was resurrected so that we might live in a new way, so that we might receive and experience new life, the life that we were created to live. See, we were set f- salvation includes more than simply forgiveness of sin and clothing us with righteousness, but this new life, we we were set free from the wages of sin, but we were set free for something, for righteousness. Peter writes, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Easter is not simply about Jesus' death and resurrection so that one day we can go to heaven. Yes, it is that. Praise the Lord. That is our hope. But it is also Jesus' death and resurrection of life so that we might be united with him in his death to sin and made alive to the new life, the life that we were created to live. Peter is getting at the so that. So that now, through faith in Jesus, our lives might be transformed. So that now, through what Christ has accomplished, we might live a new life in a new way that we might learn to put to death sin and we might learn to walk in righteousness. Now this brings us to question three. How are we to do this? How are we to do this? How can we possibly live in this new way? How do we live this new life? Is it even possible? Peter, of course, we need to understand this in the context of the whole New Testament and in the context of even 1 Peter. Peter, of course, is not describing sinless perfection. He is speaking of a gospel-generated transformation, divine infection, if you will. That the gospel takes hold in our hearts. There's something new that is true of us. Through faith in Jesus, our sins have been paid for. Through faith in Jesus, we are clothed with the perfection of Jesus. And the goal is that so that we live, die to sin, and live for righteousness. You see, apart from Christ, apart from faith in Christ, it is impossible to live a life pleasing to God. We can do some good things, but even the good we do is tainted by sin. But see, in Christ, we are declared right with God. Uh, In Christ, we are clothed with Christ's perfection. It's about His performance and not ours. We are set free from judgment. We are set free from the penalty that was ours. Christ has borne that on the cross. And we are also set free to live the life that we were created to live. We were made, every one of us was created in the image of God. We were to live as his regents, as his representatives, as a reflection of what he is like in the world. And the gospel, this good news, uh, tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are actually transformed. In that moment, our identity changes. Apart from Christ, apart from faith in Jesus, we are dead, the scriptures tell us. But through faith in Jesus, we are made alive. Apart from Christ, we are in spiritual darkness. In Christ, we are in in the light. Apart from Christ, we are children of wrath, deserving God's judgment. But in Christ, we are adopted as his daughters and his sons. Apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. We can't do anything but sin. All, even our good things are tainted by sin. But in Christ, we are slaves to righteousness. Our identity is radically changed when we put our faith in Jesus. That's the good news. Our identity is new. We 
have been transformed. And so how do we do this? How do we live this new life? One, we need to cling to the truth. We need to know the truth. We need to preach the truth to ourselves daily that you are in Christ a new creation. You're no longer a slave to sin. You no longer have to live in those ways and that God's Spirit indwells you to live in the new way. And that leads us to the second part of the answer here. Not only do we need to cling to and and recognize and preach to ourselves the truths that we see fleshed out in the story of Jesus on Easter and this Passion Week, His death for us and His resurrection for our justification. We also need to see what Peter says at the end of our text. He says this, You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, he says you were living estranged from God, far from God. You had wandered. We, we had all, like sheep gone astray, we wandered. We were far from God. But now, but now you're in his grip. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. Now you're named and kept for good by the shepherd of your souls. Now we are loved by Christ, the shepherd of our souls. See, what we need to understand not only is that Christ's death and resurrection has, has changed our identity through faith in him. We are no longer in sin and darkness. We are now children of God, slaves to righteousness. Our identity has changed. But also, we need to know that Jesus is with us. The shepherd of our souls is with us. You are never alone in Christ. We will feel alone. There will be times where we will cry out with the psalmist, My God, my God, where are you? But the truth is that we are never alone. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus loves you. Jesus cares for you. Jesus protects you. And by his spirit he indwells you. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. The life that we are called to live, the the life of discipleship, following Jesus, following his example, following in his footsteps is not a life that you or I can ever produce merely by digging in and trying real hard. No, as our vision says, this is a, a spirit-empowered life. Our vision as a church, maybe if you're, not, uh, if, if you're just joining us today, our vision is that, that God would uh, lead us to grow deeper in intimacy with Jesus, closer in relationships with one another, and bolder on, on mission for the lost. And, but those realities, those areas of growth in Christ and in community and on mission, those are grounded in the gospel. They're grounded in what was accomplished through Christ's death for us and his resurrection and empowered by the Spirit, that is, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, the Scriptures tell us, indwells us when we put our faith in Jesus. He comes and takes up residence in us. And so we are never alone. This is not a life we produce by our own striving, but by allowing the Spirit of God to move in us, to work in us as He applies the truths of the gospel to our hearts and our minds. I have learned over the years of my life with Jesus to pray the Scriptures. And what I mean by that is that there are different verses that I've learned or God leads me to. I read and, and, and God challenges me, speaks to me, encourages me through those and, and I learn them. And then I find myself as I pray throughout the day or maybe at night as I get older, I find myself sleeping less well, waking up often. And I find myself praying these scriptures in these last weeks, perhaps month, God has led me to pray Galatians 5, and 23. 
Many of you are familiar with those verses. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are the fruit of the Spirit. These are manifestations of the Spirit of God. These aren't things that we dig in and try and produce. This is the fruit of the Spirit. And so as I've been reciting that, I've just been praying, Jesus, produce these in me. Holy Spirit, produce these in me. Help me to live out this new identity that is mine and yours. And, and I, I'm learning to lean into Jesus and saying, Holy Spirit, I can't do this, but, but you're with me. Produce this in me. That's the how we do this. We, we cling to, we remind ourselves of our new identity in Christ, what is true of you. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are not your old self. You are a new creation in Christ, born again, a child of the Father. And you are not alone. The Spirit of the living God indwells you to empower you to live this life. And we may struggle and fall down and we can rest in our identity, what Christ has accomplished. But we can grow into this life for it is this new life, this new way of being for which Christ died. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. We're not just forgiven, we're healed. We are made whole. We are shaped to be the women and the men that Jesus created us to be. Women and men who reflect his character. And as I said, this isn't about sinless perfection, but divine infection. God transforming us day by day into those who reflect his likeness. This Easter weekend, this Easter Sunday, we celebrate Christ's resurrection. We remember his death for us on Good Friday and his resurrection for our justification. This declaration that his sacrifice was accepted. That death could not hold him. That death has been swallowed up by new life. And that new life is life that Christ has redeemed us for. He's not only saved us from punishment and penalty that we deserved. He has saved us for a new life, a new way. The life of the Spirit. Life that reflects his goodness, his character in this world this is not something that we can do alone, but we don't have to do it alone. We're not called to do it alone. We're, we are, through faith in Jesus, brought into a relationship with Christ who indwells us. A quick word to any who are listening today who, who don't know Jesus, who haven't put their faith in Jesus. I want to say to you, Jesus loves you. Jesus has given his life for you. And if you put your faith in Him, if you say to Jesus in prayer, Jesus, you are my only hope. I need your forgiveness. I, I can't clean myself up. I recognize that. I recognize my utter inability to live right, to, to get right with God. I need what you offer, Jesus. You can receive His grace even today. You can receive his forgiveness. You can pass from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, be adopted as his daughter, as his son, and filled with his presence by his spirit to live in this new way, the life of the spirit, the life of discipleship, life following his example, not in order to be accepted, but because you already have been through Christ. And brothers and sisters, those of you who already know Jesus, I want to remind you this Easter, 
that Jesus' death and resurrection is not only an event that, had an, that happened thousands of years ago and that has an impact someday when you die. No, Jesus' death and resurrection is about bringing us into new life now, life of the Spirit, the, this new life of living, so that we can die to sin and live in righteousness. God wants to work in us and transform us through the gospel by the power of His Spirit to live as His ambassadors, as reflections of Him in this world. May God, by His grace and His Spirit, produce in us, for His glory, not ours, for His glory, this new life. Amen.